Thanks for joining us for another episode in SIFMA's podcast series. I'm Joe Seidel, SIFMA COO, and we're here today to talk about the Living Wills process. The Dodd-Frank Act requires large financial institutions to submit uh, resolution plans. Firms are required to describe capital and liquidity resources that would be available in resolution and to provide a roadmap for an orderly resolution without taxpayer support. Many significant steps have been taken by banks and federal regulators during the past decade to help ensure the safety and soundness of our financial system. Joining me to talk about how the living will process has evolved is Carter McDowell, Managing Director and Associate General Counsel here at SIFMA and Head of our Prudential Policy Group. So let's dive in, Carter. This week, the Federal Reserve found no deficiencies in the 2019 resolution plans of the largest U.S. headquartered banks. While the Federal Reserve found an a few firms had some forthcoming, some shortcomings on balance. The message continues to be the largest banks have credible recovery and resolution plans in the event of a future crisis. How, does this, how do these plans impact the capital markets? What do they mean for SIFMA member firms? So as you indicated, mostly these plans are what you do in the, in the next crisis. So what actions do you take to... Um, write yourself if you get into trouble, and then in the event that you can't write yourself, what would you do as you go through the bankruptcy process? In the broker-dealer space, this is a much easier um, road than in the, in the bank or credit space because most of the assets in a broker-dealer are held in um, proprietary accounts in the name of their customers. And so it's the customers that would be um, you know, subject to any increase or decrease in value of the assets that are in their account. Where this really gets um, important for our firms is how this um, living wills process integrates with what else is happening in the regulatory space and the supervisory space, specifically um, CCAR and stress testing. And so for our firms, trying to get all of these rules working together across the regulatory landscape is really important because how you prepare for what happens in the next crisis may or may not restrict what you're able to do on a day-to-day basis as you go about just serving your customers. So so in late October, the, the Federal Reserve and the FDIC revised the rules governing the living will process, and uh, I was wondering if you could outline the changes they made. So a lot of this was mandated by recent legislation packed by Congress that modified the Dodd-Frank Act, and the biggest change for the firms was it made the filing of these living wills um, a more periodic process. Um, Over the last decade, they've been filing these plans annually, and as they've become more regularized, um, the Federal Reserve realized that there wasn't much change that was taking place from year to year. And so for the largest firms, um, they've put them on a four-year cycle where you file substantive plans every four years, and in the intervening two years, you file um, updated summaries or a shortened version of the plan. For domestic SIFIs, those below the the global um, systemically important threshold, so um, the next tier of banks, they're on a um, six-year cycle um, as opposed to the four. And then for those that don't pose any sort of systemic risk to the system, the regulators exempted them from this requirement, so they reduced the regulatory burden there. Um, This is a natural evolution of the process here. Um, No one thought 
that this was even something that needed to be done before the last crisis. And um, so this is something that firms have only been doing for about 10 years. And as they've gotten better and the regulators have gotten more comfortable, they've been um, amenable to these changes so that there's less um, frequency in the filing of these plans, since they don't really change that much from year to year. So could they make more changes to make these more uh, the plans more meaningful, um, particularly in areas uh, yeah, where SIFMA firms are impacted? So one of the things, we did a report back in August on looking at the stress testing and the CCAR process and, and sort of the negative impact that it's having on market making um, and capital markets activities generally. It would be nice to see this living wills process more integrated into what is happening in the stress testing process. The Fed has been wrestling with this issue in something called um, its stress capital buffer proposal, um, which is still pending and open. There are calls for that it, or reports that it may be reopened. But what we'd like to see is the Fed using the work that's being done in this living will process to better inform what they do when they go about the process of stress testing the firms um, in the stress testing process. It would also be useful, I think, in the supervisory process for them to see how the firms themselves think they would go about managing risks since they are in the risk management business um, in some ways together with the regulators. So in the stress testing process, I think we learned from the SIFMA study that, that risk is often, it seems, misaligned in terms of the supervisory standards and, and that in particular lower risk asset categories uh, are, are penalized in, in many ways in terms of the one-size-fits-all approach that the Fed uses toward capital markets. Do we see that sort of same type of theme sort of uh, uh, taken through in the uh, resolution situation with these living wills in, in terms of how they weight various asset categories and, and the recovery rates and, and uh, uh, patterns of them? Yes. So one of the things that happens here is the living wills, you have to remember, are sort of personalized for each firm. Um, so the plan for Goldman Sachs does not look the same as the one for Bank of America, does not look the same as the one for Wells Fargo, um, because they have different business mixes and, and models. But um, they do have to plan for what types of actions they would take. So, for example, one of the things they do in the living wills is if they get into trouble, um, what are the most material subsidiaries that they've got? What assets are they able to readily sell um, and convert to cash? There are requirements in other rules that require them to hold um, a certain percentage of their balance sheet in what are called high-quality liquid assets, um, things like treasury and agency securities, cash on deposit at the Fed. And in most cases, firms are holding more than a third of their balance sheet um, in these assets. And then those assets have to be deployed um, in a resolution process as outlined in these plans where needed. Um, Hopefully, firms are not going to get into trouble throughout their organization. It's going to be focused in one segment or asset class, as it was in the last crisis, where it was primarily driven by what was happening in the residential real estate market. 
So yes, they, these could all be tied together, and we could use this as a way of, of sort of integrating both the regulatory and the supervisory process to more closely align them. You know, um, SIFMA has done a lot of work in uh, related to the resolution of a of a broker dealer um, of a standalone broker dealer, and and I think SIFMA uh, uh, published. Uh, this year, um, a playbook in terms of, of how to resolve a broker-dealer in some type of insolvency situation um, and work with, very closely with the SEC to come up with, uh, come up with that. How are broker-dealers sort of considered in, in the resolution process, uh, given their mark-to-market and the, the highly liquid nature uh, of their assets? Uh, are they given different treatment, special treatment? Are those things considered in the living will process? Um, what's your kind of thoughts on that? So broker-dealers are very different from banks. I mean, think about a bank. It basically takes deposits and it makes loans. So in a sense, the customers of the bank are lending the bank their deposits, and then the bank is lending those out as loans to borrowers who then have to repay the bank and ultimately the depositors who are making those funds available. In the case of a broker-dealer, it's much simpler. You are going to a broker-dealer, you are giving them cash, they are buying stocks, bonds, securities on your behalf and putting them in a segregated account for you. So that, and then all of those assets under SEC rules have to be marked to market on a daily basis. So the broker-dealer may hold some inventory of those stocks and bonds so that if you walk into the broker-dealer and you want to buy um, treasury securities, they've got some on the shelf. It's like in the grocery store having milk you know, in the, in the refrigerator section so that they can sell it to you. But most of the assets that are in the broker-dealer are actually owned in segregated accounts for their customers and marked to market. And so there's just really not the same sort of credit exposure in a broker-dealer that there is on the banking um, side of the business. And so on the broker side, it's much more of a liquidity um, issue that you have to be worried about. But again, one-third of the assets of all of these affiliates and then the holding companies are in the highest quality liquid assets, whether that be cash, treasuries, um, agency securities. So I think there is a, a very fundamental difference. Part of the problem that we see, though, is that the Fed doesn't recognize that difference. I think the SEC um, and certainly the CFTC do, but we're trying to educate the Fed here a little bit more about how um, broker-dealers really are in some ways safer and sounder than what's happening on the credit side of the, of the house. Yes, no, mark-to-market uh, -market really is a very, very powerful tool that I'm not sure is, is, is fully appreciated in, in the whole supervisory process on the, uh, the bank side. Um, before we close, uh, do other countries have similar requirements, and how do these plans do, get used when, when, these firm, when uh, U.S. firms operate outside of the United States? So these requirements are um, part of the global rule book. So for globally active banks, um, you know, in the largest countries, um, there are living will requirements. And in fact, there are different chapters of the living wills. So for example, for U.S. headquartered firms that have a large operation in London or Tokyo or Frankfurt, they would have subchapters that deal with how they would deal with their affiliates. Likewise, big 
foreign banks that are operating in New York or somewhere else in the United States, they have wills that cover the entire group. And then they would also have plans for what they would do to resolve their U.S. operations. And in fact, these plans are being filed not only with the Federal Reserve, but with the regulators in those countries. And there's a lot of coordination that takes place um, among the regulators so that when they're doing things like stress testing or reviewing the wills, that they're communicating with each other so that they know um, how each would react and allow for the deployment of assets to go where needed. You know, we were talking earlier, hopefully the institution doesn't get into trouble everywhere it's operating. Um, in addition to like the last time where it happened in residential real estate, it's possible that you could have a downturn in one region of the world or one region of a country. And so you'd need to deploy resources there to shore it up um, and hopefully get the firm into a, into a more stable um, and sound footing. That's terrific, Carter. And uh, thank you uh, for doing this today. And thank everyone for joining us. Uh, to learn more about SIFMA and our ongoing work related to prudential regulation, please visit us at SIFMA.org. Thank you.